Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former Major League umpire Tim Cheetah. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a man that spent 27 years as a big league umpire, worked two All-Star games, three World Series, and was behind the dish for Nolan Ryan's seventh no-hitter. Ladies and gentlemen, Tim Cheetah. Timmy, thanks for coming on the program. What a, what a pleasure it was to hear from you, Brett. Uh, this is exciting for me. Thanks for getting in touch. Well, th- well thanks for coming on. Timmy, Explain this to me. How many people in your life, your career, mispronounced your last name? Uh, everybody the first time around. Um, the only the only exceptions were, you know, back in the day, we had some, some Hall of Fame broadcasters that were working, and Ernie Harwell and Herb Carneal with the Twins and Dave Niehaus, um Jack Buck, Joe Garagiola, those guys, Vince Scully, those guys would always come down to our locker room for the first game of the series just to say hello and welcome to town and good to see you and so on and so forth. All those guys asked specifically how to pronounce my name. And they didn't just do that with me. They did that with everybody. And, you know, it's I, I tried to, to tell the younger guys when they would come up, because they, some of the younger guys would would bad would uh, would badmouth broadcasters, and uh, I would say, you know, back in the day, we were we were part of the family, and today maybe not so much. And there's a reason why all those broadcasters are in the Hall of Fame because they looked at us as human beings and guys that were you know pivotal pivotal parts to the game, and they got to know us on a personal level. And it's, it's hard, you know, if you're a broadcaster, it's hard to rip somebody that, you know, personally, uh, you know, you can, you can, you can criticize, which is part of the game and part of the business. And, but all those guys would never, they would never harp on an umpire's mistake. They would simply say, you know, Niehaus would say, well, it looks like the Mariners caught a break there or whatever. Uh, uh, maybe the twins caught a break there, that sort of thing. But it, it was never a, they didn't beat on it for the next five innings, and today I'm not. It's not quite like that. Uh, the the personal relationship between umpires and and the media as a whole is uh, is not nearly what it was like when I was working, and that's too bad because uh, uh, you still are you still are part a big big part of the game, and and they should be treated like that. You know, in our time, you you started before me. I came in shortly after you. You when you entered the big leagues in '86. Yeah, yeah. But we had a lot of person. We had a lot of personal relationships back then. And I say that, it, it, we, and it dawned on me when you were saying it's tough to rip somebody that you have a personal relationship. That was my strategy as a young kid coming up. I'm like, if I'm buddies with all the umpires, even if it's a it's a casual relationship, they can't throw me out of the game. Now I knew I yeah. could push the envelope at certain times. But I kind of went out of my way at a young age, even in the minor leagues, to to uh, 
not endear, but I would say get to know the umpires on a name to name, on a first name basis, you know, and I, and I teach that to kids nowadays, the young players in, in a ball, I said, you know, when you go to the plate, this, this might be something for you to do. Check the lineup card comes out every day. It's put, it's posted in the dugout. The umpires are right there. Instead of walking up and not knowing his name, find out what his name is. When you go to the home plate, tap him and, and call him by his name. First of all, he's going to right. kind of be impressed. He's going to look at you like, wow, we're in low A ball. This kid's 18 years old, and he went out of his way to know my name. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get six inches off the plate, but it shows that you you really you cared, and you went the extra, not mile, but you know what I'm saying? And and I taught kids. I said, it's a, it's a respect thing. It's something good. I said, you're going to have a good day with some umpires. You're going to have a rough day. Some umpires, they're going to have great days where they don't miss a pitch, and they're going to have days where they don't get it together. They're just like us uh, as right. far as going out in the field. I said, but take that little extra time. And when you say, you know, in, in your time – the, the announcers did and probably the players more than they do today. Obviously I'm not on the field right now, so I don't know. what well, you, yeah, goes yeah. On, but, you, I get, you, but it doesn't look I, like it's I the do same. Stay in touch. I stay in touch with a lot of the guys, the guys that uh, guys that worked on my crew that are still working when they come through the twin cities, which is where I live. I will get together with them, you know, and I say the one thing that's really missing and you hit, you hit it right on the, right on the head about, you know, we came through the minor leagues together and, you know, I, I tell guys, you know, they'll say, oh, this guy's a jerk and this guy's this and this guy's that. And I go, you know what? I've known that guy for 40 years. You know, I've known, I've known Buck Showalter since he played first base in Nashville back in 1983. You know, Terry Collins, his first game as a minor league manager was my first game as a minor league umpire. Uh, Joe Madden and I go back to when he ran the Angels uh, Instructional League Team when I was working instructionally with with one game in, you you come up together and you come up together as players too, you know, uh, and you get to know one another. And I tell them, listen, you know that guy's going to remember you, the player I'm talking about. He's going to remember the guy he saw in Double A, and if he gets here to the big leagues and he sees somebody different, somebody that doesn't hustle as much as they did when they were in the minor leagues, now they get here to the major leagues and they look out there and they. They see you mailing it in. I said, they're going to lose respect for you. They need to see the same guy. And they need to see the same guy when they become coaches and managers and broadcasters. And to see that, you know, that, that you still give it the same effort that you always gave. And uh, I said, trust me, it, it works. Richie Garcia taught me that when I first broke in. I broke in with him and Steve Palermo, who were two of the best umpires that ever wore the uniform. And that's the first thing they told me about how important it is, and they said it the same way. They said, you know, you work your rear end off to get here, to get the reputation that you have, and you earn it. He said, now you got to work twice as hard to keep it. And don't ever forget that because, and Richie's big line was always, don't think for one minute that they don't notice because they do. He said, especially the hardest games to work are teams that are, combined, you know, 25 games out of first in late August, the last thing they need to see is look out on the field and see the umpires taking the night off because the game might be meaningless in the standings. You're looking at a manager whose job is on the line. He's trying to do everything possible to get his guys to play hard. 
Uh, you've got players who are struggling. You know, they want to they want to meet certain preseason uh, offensive goals, and they see that they're going to fall short. You know, it 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 matters to them. So if it matters to them, it should matter to you. And and I I, I tried to tell that to all my crews once I became a crew chief. And uh, you know, some of the guys that joined my crew said, you know, I never I never thought of that. I said, well, I'm just telling you that it works. I'm not going to tell you anything that doesn't make your life better or make your job easier. Uh, so if you, if you believe it, trust me, I learned it from the best. Yeah. And that takes me to some times uh, playing, you know, getaway day and, I, and, and we'll get into it later in the show and, and let the fans in sure. a little bit on what it's like to be an umpire, what it is like on Sunday, we go extra innings and you got a flight to catch. Yeah. We're getting on a charter flight. <laughs> You've got a flight to catch. Yeah. But I remember in those games, you know, I, I, there'd be a pitch outside and it was out of the ordinary strike. And I, I, I turn around and said, listen, <laughs> I, under, I, I get it here. I get what we're going, but what you just alluded to is the fact that I care. This counts. I've got arbitration this year. I've got it. I've got to yeah. get, you know, I got it. Just give me an honest effort. As long as it's an honest effort, I, I can deal with it. But uh, yeah, the, the, the little intricacies of the game that we'll get into a, a little bit later that, that I think, uh, I'm going to learn a little bit today because I got some good questions, Timmy, about uh, uh, you'll see. You'll see. I got so I, I know most of it in the inner workings and our relationship. I know all that stuff, but I got some questions for you that, that I want to get answered today, too. Let's start with your childhood. Uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. You were raised right. there. Uh, what was little Tim Cheetah like as a kid? What were your dreams? What was your family like? What was your first love? Um, funny, I, uh, you know, like every kid, St. Paul, Minnesota is a very, very provincial town and the neighborhood I grew up in, uh, just happened to produce some guys uh, by the name of Jack Morris and Paul Molitor and David Winfield to name three. And they all played for the same coach growing up. And that particular coach used to run a coach's clinic every year. And all the Catholic grade schools and all the rec center teams, all those coaches attended that clinic. And every coach in St. Paul, Minnesota, taught the game the same way. You took infield the same way. You took batting practice the same way. You lined up the cutoff man the same way. The basic, and one of the other things that all those coaches made every kid do, they made every kid learn how to keep a scorebook. And you ask, well, why would you do that? And the philosophy was that you learned how baseball is a one base at a time game. You learned hitting behind the runner. What is a productive out? You know, little things like that that make you really, really understand what the game is about. It isn't just going up there and swinging and trying to hit the ball as hard as you can. You're trying to maybe move a runner over. You're trying to, you know, hit to the side where the, where there's a, where's an opening and, and things like that. So, Every kid was just really, really well coached. And when I was 14 years old, uh, you know, if I'd have continued playing, I was, I was good enough to probably play on the varsity in high school. That was it. But and the only reason I would have played was because we weren't very good. And when I was 14, um, my, my coach, there was, a, there was a girls' softball game that the umpire hadn't showed up. And he said to me, I need you to go umpire this game for me. And I said, yeah, right. <laughs> Good chance of that happening. 
And he goes, no, seriously, I, I, I need you to do it. You can do it. And I said, I'm not going to do this. I, I want nothing to do with it. He finally talks me into it after bribing me with a couple cheeseburgers and, you know, whatever he could strum up. So I went and I did the game. And then every Thursday, this particular game uh, required an umpire. They could never get anybody to cover that slot. So I started doing it on a regular basis, and I was making uh, $5 a game, which was in 1974. I was 14. I was in the eighth grade. And that was big money, you know, for a kid making five bucks a week. And my parents were giving me an allowance of five bucks a week. So I was at 10 bucks a week. And then that summer, um, I started doing uh, baseball, youth boys baseball. And then, and they played that in the mornings. So I would ride my bike and, and bring I'd throw my balloon check protector over my back shoulders on my bike and hook my mask on my handlebars. And, and uh, I started doing kids baseball and I just got to liking it. And then I started to uh, go to games and I started watching the umpires a lot more than I did the players. And we had some umpires in this area that had umpired in the minor leagues and they got out on their own. They, they, uh, it wasn't for them. They didn't like the, the minor league life, the travel and the no money and that sort of thing, but they came back and they umpired American Legion and they umpired men's amateur ball and high school ball and college ball. And uh, they were very generous with younger umpires. They shared all their knowledge and all of a sudden, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> all of a sudden one of them saw me work one day when I was about 15 and he said, I want to take you with me. So I started working with this guy and, and uh, lo and behold, uh, when I was 16 years old, I stopped playing altogether and I was umpiring high school varsity when I was 16 years old. And one of the reasons I could get away with it was uh, um, I, uh, I was shaving every day when I was 16. So I looked a little bit older. And uh, But most of the kids in St. Paul knew who I was. And they were okay with it. And I kept working. And uh, my goal in life at the time, I was uh, I wanted to be a teacher and a coach and officiate. Then I started officiating football and, ho and hockey as well. And, and my goal was to teach and coach and, you know, maybe be, uh, maybe be an athletic director or a principal or something. And if I could ever umpire the state tournament, you know, that would be just the greatest thing ever. And, uh, so I was halfway through college in St. Paul, Minnesota at the university of St. Thomas. And, uh, they have a January term, which is, uh, five weeks, uh, in the middle of the school year where you have to take uh, a shortened class. They offer several, but you could also take an internship somewhere, uh, go different places and get, you had to do it two out of your four years. So I decided to go to the umpire school for two days. One, it was, I was getting college credit for it. And two, I was getting out of Minnesota in the month of January and going to Florida. So my goal again was simply to hone my skills. And when I got there, I, uh, I finished first in the class and they offered me a job in the class A California league right there. And then, and, and, uh, I was, I was just 20 years old and I, I called my parents and I said, uh, now I, I was in uh, Scottsdale. I went to spring training and, uh, I called my parents and I said, uh, I'm not coming home till October. They're offering me a job and I'm going to take it. And, uh, 
I did two years in the Cal League and went to Instructional League and went to the Southern League after that and uh, got halfway through the Southern League and there was an opening in the American Association and I was the the Southern League in 1983 was the first year that any double-A league went to three umpires. And I only had two years in the game. I was I was the 15th man on a 15-man staff as far as time in the game is concerned. And there was an opening in AAA, and uh, Tim, Tim Welke got promoted to the big leagues. And uh, it was July 15th, and uh, the American Association president called the umpire development office and said, I want a guy who's a major league prospect. And they said, well, the only major league prospect we have is uh, only got two and a half months in double A and he's not ready yet. And they, he said, I don't care. I'll take him. And that was me. So I jumped over a whole bunch of guys, which guys I'd never even met yet. And it was a huge opportunity, you know, and, and, uh, uh you know, when you get opportunities, as, as you know, Brett, it's the same for an umpire as it is for a player. You get that opportunity, now you got to take advantage of it. You know, if, if I'd have gone up there and, and uh, not done well, uh, you know, they would have said I wasn't ready. The same as a player. You know, if you if you skip a level and you get up there and you're hitting a buck 80, uh, they, you know, you got a long ways to come back from. And fortunately, when I got to AAA, uh, there was a supervisor for the American League happened to be in attendance that night, but he was looking there. He was there to look at one of the guys I was working with, and I had the plate that night, and I had an umpire's dream. I had two pitchers that just pounded the strike zone, and I think we pulled that thing off in about two hours and ten minutes. And and when the supervisor found out I was 23 years old, he called the American League right away and said, "Buy the buy the rights to this guy." And uh, I didn't know that at the time. I had no idea there was anything in the works that they were interested in me. Then that fall, they sent me to the Dominican Republic, and I came back, and I went back to the association. Then I went to the Dominican again. And then in 85, I came up for about 50, 60 games. And then uh, in April of 86, there was two openings and uh, they hired Dale Scott and myself to fill those spots. And uh, it went so fast, you know, and I had I had a reputation, you know, being, you know, this guy's got a connection somewhere or whatever, and I, I tell people all the time, when I went to umpire school, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know an instructor. I didn't know. All I did was what they told me to do. And, you know, if you listen, and then the years later that I instructed at umpire school, I used to tell the students the same thing. I'd say, listen, you got five weeks to learn this, so you can do one of two things. You can buy into what I'm telling you and be successful, or you can question everything I tell you and wind up going home after five weeks. It's up to you, but I wouldn't waste a minute here because we're looking for the best people. And, uh, you know, I went so fast just, just getting there, and then it goes twice as fast once you are there. You know, I mean, holy cow, I was all of a sudden I'm a veteran umpire in the, in the major leagues, and some days it's still, it's still, I look back on it and I go, holy smokes, you know, I'm, I'm 62 years old now and I still feel like I'm 40. Uh, I don't think I could be out there doing it anymore and I'm glad I'm not, but, uh, you know, that was, that was the run. That's where it started. And it was, it was for me, probably the best description is it was a, a hobby that became a career and I never worked a day in my life. 
Yeah, because I was wondering. I'm thinking, when? I wonder when. Well, and then I was going to ask you. You explained it right there. I was yeah. thinking, when did he actually start? When does it pop in your head? I'm going to be an umpire. No, I'm going to be an umpire at a high level. I'm going to be a big league umpire. It started now. Right. Now I see where it started. It started when you were 14, 16. You're doing varsity games. Once you're you're 16 year old kid doing varsity baseball. That that kind of sends a message like I'm kind of serious about this thing because we you don't see you don't see 16 year olds doing varsity baseball. You know, no, you don't, yeah. you don't. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, no, no one, trust me. And it's no matter what the sport is, uh, nobody grows up dreaming of becoming a major league umpire or an NBA referee or, or an NHL referee or an NFL guy. You, you wind up becoming one, you know, everybody, everybody starts off as what I call a reluctant volunteer. You know, because somebody didn't show. Uh, right, right. You know, Here, grab you, the gear. Usually you call balls and strikes, yeah. though, from behind the pitcher. <laughs> right, and try not to right. get hit with the ball. You know? Right. And, and you, you just wind up, and it, it's, a, it's a fight or flight experience. I, I've, when I meet people here and there for the first time ever, you know, and they find out I'm an umpire, they say, oh, my God. I had an umpire one day. I was my kid's little league game and the guy didn't show up and they pulled me out and told me to go do it, you know, and they go, I don't, I never wanted to do that again. I did once and that was it. I was never, I said, I, this guy would say, I, I made it, uh, made it a point to get to the game late just in case, just in case they needed somebody that I wasn't there cause they could get me again. <laughs> and it was, it was, uh, that's how it works for people. And primarily because your first time doing it, it's almost exclusively you're umpiring or refereeing for people that you know, that you grew up with, or 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 the parents of kids you know, and and Brett, they're yelling at you. They're not they're not saying you know, hey, come on, Mooney. Oh no, they're yelling at you because you're calling a strike on their kid. Right. And some people don't like that, you know. And and but for guys, the guys that go into this profession and pursue it are guys that are just attracted to the challenge of being good at it. Cause not everybody that does it can be good at it. And there's, there's a, there's a real challenge as to, as I said earlier about, all right, I watched this guy and okay, how come he took this play over here? And I'm looking at the angle that he takes and the distance that he takes and how he calls a guy out and all the little things where they are at the time of the pitch and you know, you name it. And, and it's not just go out there and react. Because nobody, no, the, the, excuse me, the fastest umpire is slower than the slowest player. So you've got to have a little bit of anticipation as to where you need to be at the time of the pitch and then where you need to go if the ball's hit here, the ball's hit there. Same, same as a player when it comes to, you know, I've got to assume the ball's going to be hit to me. Where am I going to be looking to go with it? Umpires have to do the same thing to be good at it. You gotta think that way, and uh, uh, the and guys the that are able to right. you know, in, start to master that are guys are successful. In the beginning, too, <laughs> it's when you're first learning. When you're in umpiring school, there's probably a learning curve, and it's okay. I got to think. I got to be here. Here's the here's the the order how it goes. And if this happens, I do this. If this happens, I do that. At the beginning, it's probably something where you got to study, and re- just like as a player. You know, when you're young yep. and we're going first and third defense as well, 
first yep. their defense is when you're when you're 12 it's kind of like well i got to think about this you might miss a sign you might do it wrong uh, as you get older and then once you get you know professional to the big leagues become second nature i mean and i'm sure that did the same thing for you being an umpire is no i just my body knows where to go in any situation there might be a little bit of a thought process in between pitches but i know what i'm doing on i've got 10 different scenarios and it's the ball is going to dictate all 10 of those scenarios on where I'm going to be, where I'm going to go trail. Am I the lead guy? Uh, And that that's trial and error. And that's just experience and and doing it more and more. Um, You mentioned you, you did some, some football. Was there a particular one? Did you always know that baseball is what you wanted to do when you were referee in other sports? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I really, uh, hockey, uh, skating is probably my best athletic skill. I played a lot of hockey growing up and I used to do, I, I refereed, uh, well, of course, Minnesota, we have great high school hockey. I did a lot of that. And then I, I refereed uh, division three college. Um, uh, I, I was a good hockey official. I, I will say that I, I was a, a solid at that level. Uh, to be able to take it to the National Hockey League, um, first of all, I'm not Canadian, so my chances aren't very good. Uh, but secondly, I'm not big enough, physically big enough. You know, those linesmen are big men. And if you're going to, you know, you got to go in there and pull those guys apart. You and I know what it's like to be, you know, I'm 5'8". I'm not going to say how tall you are. I don't really know, and I'm not going <laughs> to have you put it out there. But, Barely you know, taller five, than eight, you. Five, five, <laughs> <laughs> Five eight, I got a better chance of getting the low pitch right than I do breaking up a fight on a hockey ring. That's basically it. But baseball really took over. I loved baseball as a kid, and and uh, I had a buddy who, uh, growing up, he uh, he owned a he didn't own it, but he operated a, a novelty stand out at the old Met Stadium. This was before the Metrodome was built. And back then, they would it was a kiosk kind of a thing, you know, and they'd set the kiosk up outside as the fans were coming in to sell novelties. And then once the game started, then they would fold it up and wheel it in. So me and two other friends would always get there at 1 o'clock and then fold it up, and he'd hand us each a box, and we'd just carry a box in with them and go in and watch the game every night. And... uh and then we or sneak in because we couldn't afford to buy tickets or anything like that. And I, there again, I, I, uh, all I did was watch the umpires at that time, watching those guys, watching, watching first, looking at their uniforms and shoes were shined and, and, you know, they were tailor fit and, and every time the ball was hit, you know, the second base umpires going this way and third base guys coming up or whatever, you know, I'm going like, wow. There's a, this is a system, you know. This is not just reaction. This is you again. You got to know, you got to know where you're going when the ball's hit, and that's that. It, that's what grabbed me. I, baseball to me, it's the greatest game in the world, and I'm, I know I'm I'm preaching to the choir on that one. So, uh, it, it it was an easy choice. I want to talk to you a little bit about the minor leagues, uh, yeah. because at, as you know players, what? every 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 major league umpire always says to me, they go. Did you actually work in the minor leagues? <laughs> they all bust <laughs> you say, my of, co- of course I did. Not as long as I, you, maybe. I, was, but I, I was wasn't there. there. I wasn't very, very. When I got when I got uh, promoted out of the Southern League, my partner, one of my, we had, had two partners, and they were both very, very supportive. They weren't jealous. They weren't, you know, they go, hey, that's great, Tim. And you know what? You deserve it. You deserve it. 
And but one one of my guys who was actually my crew chief, he says, I've only got one question for you. I said, yeah, what is it? He goes, did you get to every town in the Southern League? <laughs> I said, yes, as of tonight. I made it to Birmingham, and I'm leaving them. But I, bet I got to every town once, and that was it. That's it is, and the little bit of difference, you know, the minor league life, it's different. I mean, it's big for a player, especially when I was coming up. It's like, well, Brett, here you go. You're an A ball. You're coming from USC. Uh, you fly yep. on nice planes. You live in a nice place. Your ballpark's really nice. And all of a sudden, they drop me off in the Carolina League uh, to War Memorial yeah. Stadium in Peninsula. And I get out of the cab and I go, are you serious? This is where I play now. I walk yeah. into my locker room. It wasn't even oh. anything like the USC locker room. And there started oh, yeah. my minor league journey. Now I didn't care as a minor leaguer. Cause I didn't care if I, you know, as long as I had a couch to sleep on, my goal was to get the hell out of a ball and get to double A and double A. I don't care how much money I didn't have. I was going, right. you know, I was here with blinders oh. on to get through this Southern league. Uh, and I actually, looking back on it, I kind of enjoyed the tough time where I didn't have a lot of money and, and I had to grind for everything. It didn't bother me one bit. Um, the only thing I yeah. see different from players, because umpires, I'm sure in A-ball, you don't have all the perks in the world. You, I mean, you're you're with your partner and you're driving town to town and, and the money's not there, just like us. The only difference I yeah. see from a minor league player standpoint and a minor league umpire is if, if I go to my A-ball team and I'm the second baseman, I'm the only second baseman there. So when I get right. called to, to double-A, it's like, okay, you get called to double-A, and it's like, wait a minute. You see what I'm saying? It's it's like th- there's no competition question. amongst your partners. No whereas if my good buddy is a, a relief pitcher and a left fielder, and I get called to the big leagues, they're, they're, not, they're not competing with me. Uh, per se, you know what I'm saying? But if they're in your crew, hey, you're looking to be the best. You're not looking to, to knock your partner down and, and, and take the spotlight. You're just looking, hey, I got to do the best I can. He's doing the best he can. But we're competing amongst, amongst one another. You know, I just got up a minute ago and walked out into the kitchen to grab a cup of coffee, and that, that thought went through my head. And I can't begin to tell you how astute that question is because a player, former player would, it would never occur to them. And the answer to it is this. Yes, you're exactly right. You are, you are competing with your partner. Um, but you can't look at it that way because you have to go out there every night and just try to be the best umpire in your league. And he has to be trying to do the same thing. If you do that, how do you do that? Well, that means that when the ball's hit, we've got to move. I got to go to third. You got to pick up the guy behind me. I got to go to the second. You got to go back to the plate. You know, you, you've got all your movements because if one guy goes the wrong direction, you both look bad. And it is the, the, I can't begin to tell you how common it was over the years that I worked with. You know, I worked with Dale Scott. I went to umpire school together. We worked in the California League together. We worked instructional league together. I was always like about a half a year ahead of him. I went to AAA. He came to AAA and worked with me again. We went to the Dominican together. And we got hired by the American League on the same day. That's not a coincidence. 
because every time we walked on the field together, we tried to make each other as good as we could be. And, and if, if you do that, you're both going to go home in the same limo. And guys like, like Steve Ripley and Larry Young, they work together a lot. Uh, I'm just naming you a few, but there's, there's a whole bunch of them that because they were generous with each other, they both succeeded. And there was guys that didn't work that way. They went home. They, they never got their chance because it was, you could, they just didn't perform well on the field together because they were all tied up about themselves. And again, as you said about, about your buddy, you know, you, you have to share a room together. Uh, you can't, you can only afford to go into a restaurant once a day. Uh, and it usually has to be, you know, like a sizzler or someplace where you've got a salad bar or something that you can get as much food in you as you can because your other meal is going to be coming from the concession stand at the end of the night. And that's it. <laughs> Without there, a doubt, there's, 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 I, I was frequenting the Piccadilly. Exactly. Yeah, for the same reason, you know. Mm-hmm. You try to Just try to get as much food as you can because you can't afford it. And But as you said, and it's so true, those were the fun times you know, where you had to lean on each other and, and, uh, the hungry years. And, and, uh, obviously, you know, when you get that first big league per diem check, it's the biggest check you ever got. And, but at the same time, it, it's money, money can separate people as, as, as you get further and further along. And, and, you know, if you could, if you could go back to the, to the times when you were, you know, uh, scraping together, you know, two $5 bills to have enough gas money to get home from Fresno or some, somewhere like that. You know, it was, it wasn't, you had, you had to rely on each other and you had to root for each other. I remember, uh, you know, I was telling you that story I, I signed and I went to Peninsula in the Carolina league and I remember yeah. that first night and it was my first game. We finished the game and I came in after it, you know, what do I know? I'm, I'm 21 years old. 20 years old and I'm you know I grew up in this my dad at the time still in the big leagues so I walk in I walk into the clubhouse after the game and I kind of look around and I say hey where's the spread (laughs) and I remember remember, you know I've told this I've told this story before there was a gentleman by the name of Tiny and there's there's one of these guys in every minor league uh, city that works the stadium and he was the not only was he the concession guy but he broke tickets off and uh, he would come and see if the coaches need anything he he just had he wore four or five different hats and I remember he was tiny oh, yeah. he weighed about he was on the, he was on the ground he was on the ground screw too on the tarp. yeah yeah oh yeah if it's raining he's out there helping the tarp but he's you know he's tiny because he's oh, yeah. 350 pounds and oh, yeah. uh, every town had one and I said where's the spread and he looked at me. He said, "Hey, big legger, this is my first day in a ball." He goes, "Just wait right there." <laughs> and he comes back with, yeah, like right. you said, the leftover hot dogs that hadn't been sold. He throws them at me in a box, and he goes, "There's your fucking spread." <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and every you know all the other guys that have been in a ball. You know, I had some guys on my team that were 25, 26 years old, and they're looking at me Absolutely. with that look like. You've got no clue, yeah. kid. And really, that aspect yeah. of it, I learned really quick. I had no clue. Uh, I remember the umpire yeah. situation. And this is one of my favorites to, sure. today. And, you know, the, the layman, the average everyday fan has no idea. But I, I came up through college. 
And in college, what do we call the umpires? We call them blue. And it's accepted. Blue. Hey, blue. It, right. Yeah. And blue accepts being called blue, and it's no problem. So I get to A ball, and I'm just, you know, coming out of the Pac 10, and it was one of my first games. And, you know, I'm shading this guy up the middle, and the umpires, you know, he's in my line, which happens yep. time to time. Yep. If you were in my line, I'd say, Timmy, could you give me a couple to the right? Yeah, Booney, no problem. So I look at him. I hey, right. hey, Blue, can you give me two to the right? And he calls time in the middle of the game. He goes, come out. Yeah. He turns around. He says, all right, Boone, is it? I said, yeah. He goes, first of all, my name's not Blue. It's Ken. Yeah. And secondly, <laughs> yes, I will give you two to the right. And he moved out of my way. And for that, that was yeah. a lesson for me. I go. Kenny, <laughs> and, yeah, and it cracks, no, no, no. It cracks me up nowadays, friend. you know, fans especially. They'd be like, Blue, that was a terrible call. And still, even though, you know, they're fans, they can do whatever they want. It doesn't matter to me. But yeah. it, that story comes back oh, in my yeah. brain. It's, it's, I'm like, you never like, call a Blue, like calling, first of all, don't call your, level. When you get, as a player, don't, uh, don't call your manager coach. Right, and don't come the right. Just, teach, there's certain they, things they at the pro us, level you just don't us, do. They teach us as umpires the same thing. The first thing they tell us at umpire school is it's not coach. They'll bite your head off. They'll say, coaches are in college. You know, right. I'm the manager. My name is Skip. You call me Skip or you call me by my name. Oh, right. oh I'm sorry. I didn't, you know, I didn't know. But you're, you're talking about hot dogs. When I was five years old, I went to a birthday party. I'll make this real fast because we'll get back to baseball, but... I went home after the party. And I got sicker than heck on hot dogs. So from the time I was five years old, I couldn't. I you the smell, the look, anything of a hot dog. I wanted nothing to do with it all my life until my first year in a ball. When again, you only had X amount of dollars to spend on food every day. They did bring to the umpires' room after every game a tray of hot dogs and you know cokes. That was your. That was one of your daily meals. You know, you had to rely on that for nutrition. And all of a sudden, that thing, I looked forward to those hot dogs coming down after the game. You know, you're out there in the seventh inning and your stomach's growling and all I can think about is a hot dog. From that day on, once I got into the minor leagues at age 20, I am a hot dog connoisseur. Now, I, 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 I got to the big leagues. I started going to every hot dog stand and telling you who had the best dog. The King dog in Seattle was phenomenal. Uh, the, uh, you know, Dodger dogs, you know, everybody, I, I'm a hot dog freak nowadays. And after 20 years, if my mother was even cooking them on the stove, I would have to go outside. <laughs> so, so you do, you do learn to appreciate the little things in life when you spend time in them. Everybody in the world should spend time in the minor leagues because it humbles you beyond description. I agree. And, and it's great. It's how we grow. I, and I have different, I, I have different, you know, beliefs on a lot of people, but I see the kids today and you know, you hear in the news a lot now about complaining about conditions and how much money they're making. And I have a son in the minor leagues uh, and I, I kind of, Oh I really? Give him my, I give we're him looking my at, We're looking at fourth generation, right? Fourth generation. Uh, no, no That's pressure, impressive. Jacob. That's what I told him. Wow. I said, don't, huh. don't screw this yeah. up. But, uh, you know, and, and he's kind of, you know, he's around me all the time, so he knows. And, and my opinion is, I came up when it was nothing. I mean, half the places in A-ball, we didn't even have a locker room. We'd show up in our uniforms, right. sit in the dugout, eat peanut yeah. butter and jelly in between batting practice and the game. And that's all we right. do. And I see, to oh, we need better conditions and more. And I'm thinking, 
if I'm an owner, I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. And, and especially what you see today, the facilities, the, it's like, yeah. you, oh, don't yeah. add, you don't add to the bottom line. That's why you don't get no. paid. And by the way, if you, right. if you keep going and you make it, you're going to be rewarded a hundredfold. But it's the grind right. that gets you there. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm not happy for them. I think it's cool that the facilities are better. Uh, they have nutritionists. Mm-hmm. They, have, they have a training staff. I think that's wonderful, and I think it's making the game better. But when I hear guys complaining that haven't made it yet, we never complained. It was just like, yeah, we don't have no. any money, and we got, we got shitty facilities, uh, but that's what we do. We go out and play, and I'm probably going to make a few more errors, errors because of this field and the conditions it's in. But you know how what? The, the people watching about, me and evaluating yeah. me, they know that. How about the batter's boxes that had nothing but holes in them? You know, you, you, you walk oh, up and you try to step into it. the box, and there's, there, there's a hole for your right foot and a hole for your left foot and this big hump in between them. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Go ahead. We had a game we had a game in, in my in eighty one, which was my first year. Uh the players went on strike for a long time. And it was the fourth of July and I was in the Cal League and Dale Scott and I and it was Fourth of July weekend and the Padres and Angels decided to fly fly their A ball teams down for July third at Anaheim and July 4th at San Diego to have like dollar tickets and fireworks shows. And Dale and I were the umpires that went along. And I umpired home plate at Anaheim stadium in July of 1981. And I felt almost like I was going to fall forward or fall down because the ground at home plate was so level. I had, I'd never stood on dirt, you know, that was so perfect. <laughs> and it was it was awkward to me, you know. I'm used to stepping in a pit, you know, to get around the catcher and do all these other things. And the, of course, the field, Anaheim Stadium, you saw it as a kid. Uh, you know, it was unlike any other. I mean, it was so pristine. And and uh, uh, I just I just remember I remember we go back up to Reno after that, and there I am standing back in the holes again. It doesn't take you long to <laughs> to realize how good how good it is. It makes you want to get to the big leagues even more. The problem I had is going down on a rehab assignment or, you know, out of spring yeah. training, a lot of the big clubs, they'll start off with, with an affiliate of theirs for, a, you know, to raise some money for that year's team. If the big club comes into town for one night, you might, you might get eight or 9,000 right. people. And I remember we always had right. to do one of those. But we'd go to that facility wherever, let's call it San Bernardino, and all of a sudden you'd get in the, you know, you'd get in the box and you're hitting batting practice that day, and all of a sudden you're, you're looking at the, the backdrop. And, and you can't yeah. see, you know, because in the big leagues, yeah. as we know, I mean, everywhere you go, I mean, yeah, there'll be some nuances if you, if you have a goofy start time, a 4.45 start time. But, you know, the typical 7 o'clock game, big league backdrops are perfect. They're perfect. They're dark. Yeah. You can see the right. ball. But it's not always that way in the minor leagues. And as you, <laughs> the farther away from the minor leagues, you, the more spoiled you get. You come back. That's what used to bother me the most about having to yeah. go to play at a triple A field or a double A field is those backdrops. And it's like, I can't see. It's almost like I'm yeah. completely blind. And then you think to yourself, yeah. those years in the minor leagues, how did I ever manage? Well, we didn't know any better. Exactly. We just did. We just thought right. that's the way everybody sees until you can, you get to the big leagues and like, you know, similar to what a big league batter's box is a little different than a minor league right. batter's box. What's that? Just a, what's just that a uh, little. You know, there's just no lips little. in the big leagues. It's all seamless. So, 
Yeah, exactly. So true. 1986. So true. Yep. 1986. Okay. Uh, I think you become a, a full time, right? Do they call it on Correct. staff? Yep. Is that what they call it on staff? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You're you're full time, which means you got uh, you're accruing pension time and you are uh, full full uh, schedule and and uh, you know per diem everything is uh, you know you're at your first year salary. Here here you are. So. You, you started off, you, you come into the big leagues in a time where, and, and for the people listening out there to the Boone podcast, when Timmy came into the big leagues and when I came into the big leagues, they were separate. The American League umpires. Right. And then there, there's National right. League umpires. Now, you go back right. in the day a little bit, you talk about that, that I, I forget what you called it, a balloon, that big, uh, the chest protector. That was an American right. League thing, wasn't it, back in the day. When my That's grandpa right. played, yep. they all had them. They all had them. You're exactly right. And in 1979, there was a movement to try to get the umpiring a little bit more uniform from league to league because there was this conception that um, the strike zone varied uh, between leagues to the point where it had an effect on the World Series that depending on if you had an American League umpire or a National League umpire behind home plate, the tendencies were going to be the National League guy would call a lower strike, the American League guy would call a higher strike. Uh, whether or not that was true, of course, they didn't have the analytics, you know, that they have today. All they had was, you know, eyeball observations, you know. Uh, but they wanted to <clears throat> they wanted to kind of blend those a little bit more. And then the umpires uh, formed their union in 79. And after the settlement, then they made the uniforms between leagues uh, the same. And then uh, umpires had the option to go to the inside protector in, in the American League should they choose. And then there was only three guys that kept the balloon and they were very close to retirement. Uh, so they were grandfathered in that they wanted to continue to use it. Um, one thing I will say that, you know, you hear all this talk about concussions and everything. And if the American league bought your contract back in those days, when the balloon was still exclusive to the American league, they would send you to Puerto Rico that winter with a balloon for you to learn how to use it because you had been working the inside protector your whole minor league career. Now you got to, now you got to learn how to use a balloon at the major league level and all those umpires. And it goes back to Joe Brinkman and Don Denkinger, Jim McKean, Richie Garcia, Dave Phillips, Jimmy Evans, guys in that era. Uh, they all came back and they said the same thing. They were down there for three months and they said they took more foul balls off the mask wearing that balloon in four months than they had in 10 years in the minor leagues. And it's because you stood directly over the top of the catcher and your head was just straight above his. So, so if a hitter fouled the ball straight back, it caught you square. If you're working off to the side, it would be more of a glancing blow and it wouldn't be such a hard hit. In addition to that, uh, pitchers didn't throw as hard. There was a few, you know, Sam McDowell, and there was a couple guys that threw hard. But, you know, the average fastball was in the high 80s back then. And it, it wasn't such a such a uh, hard 
shot to the mask. Well, now everybody throws a hundred. And right now I think, I think going into this postseason, there's like nine guys on staff. They have 98 full-time, I think it's 96. And they had like 10, 10 guys that were out on, on concussion protocol simply because of foul balls to the mask. Because How is that? The way they the way they move around, you know, and they, they they get up underneath and they force they force your head into that wheelhouse, and if you get it, it is, you know, uh, if you hit a if you hit a fastball straight back that's coming in at ninety eight, the exit velocity is is goes up just like it does if you hit it forward. Right. So the umpire is getting hit at one hundred two, one hundred three, and that hurts. I uh, well for a guy, it's one of the reasons like I retired me. when I did. For a guy like me, I've never caught a game in my life. I've never umpired a game in my life. I've never been in a goal of a hockey. Uh, I've never been a right. hockey goalie. <clears throat> I've, believe me, I've witnessed a lot of things in my life, and I've got hurt quite a bit. Yeah. But I've never taken yeah, a ball yeah. to the math. And I think about that, you know, and I'm sitting there, and I'd ask my dad all the time. He would just kind of, yeah, right, it feels like this and that. You know, kind of shoes it off because that's what he did. Right. It's like getting hit yeah. in the ribs with a 98-mile-an-hour with a fastball to to – a fan or to somebody that plays a different sport, what's that like? It's got to be scary to me. No, it's not a big deal. It's yeah. part of the game. I never think I'm going to get hit. And I never was uh, backed off by somebody that hit me. It's just part of the game. Right. I couldn't imagine going across right. the middle in the NFL and get clobbered by a linebacker. You know, that's, I couldn't imagine getting punched in right. the face by Mike Tyson, but getting hit in the head with a 98 mile hour fastball, it's part of the game, <laughs> you know? So that's our, right. that's, yeah. that's just our individual sports. Yeah. Explain it in, a, well, you know, in the shortest and, shortest amount. What that feels like when you really get squared up. It feels like you stuck your finger in a light socket. I, I had the worst one I ever had. I had one. The first one that I had, I didn't know I had it. Um, it was lunch the next day, and I just plain didn't feel well. You know, I was sitting there, and the room kind of started spinning, and and. You know, I was, I was coherent and everything, but I, I was like, God, I just feel lousy. So I kind of, I put my hand underneath the table and I took my pulse. My pulse was like at a hundred, which is high, but it's not alarmingly high. I wasn't clammy or short of breath or no chest pain, sweaty. So, okay. I said, I'm not having a heart issue, but I, I don't feel well. And it didn't feel like the flu. It was just. Finally, uh, I just told the guys, I said, I need to go see a doctor. There, 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 something's wrong with me. So they took me to the doctor, and, and they ran. They basically diagnosed me by elimination. They took an EKG. They tested me for MS and Parkinson's and ALS. And uh, eventually they came to say that I had uh, an inner ear infection. Because I was, I, I had a little vertigo when I was walking, and just again, I didn't feel good. So, what do you do for an inner ear infection in 1997? Well, we didn't have a medical director, so they said, "Yeah, just go home, and then when you feel better, come back to work." Well, okay. So I went home, and it just kind of laid around for a few days, and then I started feeling pretty good, and so oh, good, good. I feel well, maybe I cut the grass today and look at going back to work. I got up, went out, cut the grass, and in about 15 minutes, I had to go in and lay down. I was spinning, just dizzier than all get up. <clears throat> and looking back on it, knowing now what I had I known it then, 
uh, I was concussed. <clears throat> and uh, a few years later, I had one in, in uh, when Smoltz, Smoltz was his closer for, uh, for the Braves. And we were in Atlanta, and we're in the ninth inning with two outs. And Bonds fouled one straight back, and it caught me right square on the chin. Now, I'm, I'm kind of fortunate in that I have, a, I have a small chin, and more often than not, when my mask would get hit, it would knock my mask off, which is a good thing, because then my head wasn't taking the, the, the biggest brunt, you know. It would glance it off, and I didn't really feel anything. Well, Bonds flagged me this night, and I mean, I tell you, I felt that from the top of my head to the ends of my toes. And uh, McCann, Brian McCann turns around, he goes, you all right? And I went, uh, give me a minute, go out there. And, you know, I don't know how I stayed on my feet, but eventually, you know, I, I only needed one or two more pitches, so I finished the game. And uh, then I was out. I was out for about three months. And uh, all I can tell you, I've had this conversation with Joe Maurer because Joe Maurer is another big leaguer from St. Paul, by the way. I forgot to mention him earlier. I, I grew up playing ball with his dad. And Joe and I would talk about it and about concussions. And he goes, you know, he was out for about six. God, he missed almost a full year when it was after you add it all up for the same reason. He said, you know, one night you feel great, and the next night he and his wife went to a, a hockey game, and they they sat down, and, you know, the, they started turning those ribbon scoreboards going. And he looked at his wife. He says, I have to leave. He said, I'm going to throw up right now. This, I can't I can't sit here. And that's how you feel with it. And, and uh, when it came down to the end of my career, uh, in a perfect world, I wanted, I wanted to umpire two more years uh, because I wanted to work home plate at the All-Star game at Target Field in Minneapolis. And then I may have even retired after that game, to be honest with you. I didn't want it to be a big pageantry thing, but that was something I wanted to do. And our collective bargaining agreement had a window in it, an incentive window for retirement that had a pretty significant amount of money involved. And our lawyer told me flat out, he said, Jim, it's not going to be in the next deal. He said, the baseball wants to get rid of this, and it won't be there for the taking if you wait for that. So I decided, okay, that was it. Uh, and I just, uh, I never went back. Uh, again, you, you always want to go out on your own terms, you know, and, and you know, as a player, the same thing. Uh, it, very rarely does that happen in professional sports. Once in a while, you know, there's a, there's a player that gets a, that gets, you know, the fanfare and the farewell tour and all that stuff. But for the most of us, it's, you know, what you're not doing for me lately. And uh, guess what? We got somebody to replace you. In 2007, you become a crew chief, but who was yeah. your first crew chief? Who was your first crew chief you worked under in the big leagues? Richie Garcia. Richie Garcia. Remember him well. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, is for, for I don't an umpire think coming – for an umpire coming to the big leagues, is it not unlike a player? When I get to the big leagues in 1992, um, yep. it was kind of a tough love era. It was the yep. players were great to me, but I'll tell you what, I had to earn my stripes. And it was show no me, question. show me you belong, earn the right to sit in the back of the bus with us. Um, yep. 
and, and I had some guys that really took me under their wing, but but I'll tell you, it was it was different than it is now. It's you had to earn your stripes. You had to prove that you belong. Uh, you had to establish no yourself as a big league player. How was that? What was that like in the umpire circles? Well, kind of the same. Um, I said I spoke to a group. There's a group of Minneapolis uh, sports fans here. They call themselves the Dunkers, and they have a they have a monthly uh, breakfast at a very nice country club, and they have speakers come in. and I usually go there about once every two years. And, and uh, one of the guys in attendance, his name is Lou Nanny, and he played in the National Hockey League. And then he was a he's a Minnesota kid, and he he coached the North stars and he, he was the president of the North stars and, and uh, just a very, very well-respected guy in the NHL. He's retired now, but he was there. And I said to the group, I said, you know, no matter what sport you're in, everybody remembers how somebody treated you when you were young, whether it's a, a, a beat writer, you know, an executive, a teammate, a coach, a manager, you know, if they, if they gave you the, the hard line, you know, you're going to remember that someday, someday you're going to get your payback. But if somebody treated you like a, like an equal and treated you like a big leaguer and a pro, you're going to, you're going to remember that too. And you're going to usually pass that on to the first guy. You're going to, you're going to let, you're going to probably go out of your way to make the kid feel welcome and not make him feel like an outsider. Cause we've all been there. Richie was, he liked me from the get go because he saw me work a game in Yankee stadium. And I, I ejected, it was Lou Pinella's first year managing in 86. And it was the NBC game of the week. And I ended up running Mattingly. He was playing. I ran Lou and I ran Ron Hassey. And you know what? They all deserved it. It wasn't like I was, you know, looking for it. They just were messing with me because I was the new kid. And after the game, Richie said to me, you have no idea what you just did for your career. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, first of all, he said, every team in the league thinks that the Yankees get all the breaks from the umpires, right? He said, it doesn't happen on my crew. I can't say that it doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen with my crew. He said, but here's a kid with some funny last name going into Yankee Stadium, and he ejects these three guys on national television because back then we didn't have ESPN. We didn't have Fox and TBS and everything. The only national game was the NBC game of the week, and it pretty much was always the Yankees and the Red Sox. And, but now every other team saw that, and they're going to see you because you haven't been in the league, what, three weeks. And you're going to go to these towns and they're going to see you and they're going to recognize you. And they're going to go out of their way to come up and say hello to you. I'm telling you because you showed them that you belong here. And when you were, when the leagues were split, you know, there was, there was 14 and 12, 14 American, 12 national. So we saw each other more often, you know, you'd have a team and three weeks later you'd get them on the road somewhere. And, you know, you probably see each team, <clears throat> excuse me, half a dozen times a year. Well, now it's all one group. And the umpires get, you know, four weeks off, a week at a time, four different weeks. 
they do their time in New York doing replay. So they're not on the field as much. And then you're working all the teams. So you can have a team in April and maybe not see them again until the end of July. Now, if you're a young umpire, they, they didn't know your name back then and they don't know your name now. It, it can take, I always, I said from the beginning when they combined the staff, I said it's going to take a guy a lot longer to establish himself because he's just not going to see the teams enough. And by that time, plus you, as you alluded to earlier, um, players don't know you. They, they don't know who you are because you didn't come up together through the minor leagues either because today's player gets to the big leagues a lot faster than they used to. And in addition to that, you know, there, there's nobody on the team to say, hey, what's this umpire's name or, you know, you know, what's his reputation, anything. There's no information available to them. So it's just a, it's just a different animal than what it was when you came up. And when your dad came up, your dad was incredible. You know, uh, he was, he was really, really good about, about working with you as a ball and strike umpire. And one of the reasons was he was, he was at his time, he was the best receiver in the big leagues. He caught the ball better than anybody. And, and there was none of this framing and a bunch of that hooey. He just caught the ball because he was strong. And he could catch the ball where it was. And as a young umpire, that's the best look you've ever had in your life. It was, it was hard to miss a strike when he was catching because he just caught it where it was. The ball was on the corner. That's where his glove was. And his glove didn't get pulled away when he caught the ball because he was strong. Why was he strong? Because I remember walking out of Anaheim Stadium as a young umpire after games and seeing him running outside the stadium jogging with a 25-pound dumbbell in, dumbbell in his left hand. <laughs> That's right. Dad, your dad was a big plyometric guy. <laughs> he still yeah. tells my, oh, yeah. my, son, my son about his plyometric days, you know. <laughs> and my son will look at him like, well, yeah. that's like dinosaur workout, Grandpa. You know, and funny, because you talk about how, you know, he wore he wore the old mask. He wore the steel bar mask. He was the only guy. Oh, yeah, wore yeah. And, and part of the reason we go back to concussions, probably why he didn't have any was because steel, if you got hit square with a steel mask, the mask would dent a little bit, just a little. It wouldn't break, it would, but it would dent. So the steel would take the blow. The mask took the blow of the foul ball. Now these masks are made out of titanium. So you could set a titanium mask on a concrete slab, take a sledgehammer to it, and it wouldn't do anything. So now when an umpire gets a foul ball straight back, it snaps his neck back. And that's where they're getting all these concussions. So how do you fix that? Do you say we're going to go back to steel masks? Can you imagine the liabilities that would be sitting out there waiting if somebody actually went back to a steel mask and ended up getting hurt? You know, you know, I, interesting I, I don't have an steel. answer for it. They they right. do now have some of those masks that actually have the little shock absorbers in the chin. I don't know if you've seen right. those, but they've got like little springs in the chin and in the forehead, both the goalie mask and the regular conventional mask. So they're trying to work on it as much as they can. I'm glad I'm not out there anymore. Dad's dad's mask cracks me up because you, as a kid oh, yeah. growing up, that, that that was just dad's mask. You know, I didn't think anything weird of it. But if right. you look at the even during his time, he was the only one wearing that mask. And then exactly you see him older, and, him and Dutch older, Dutch was right. still up. Right. Dutch had one in the National League. That was it. 
Right. Yeah. You you see older footage. There's some there's some umpires in the old uh, in the older yeah. days that would wear that mask. But for a modern day guy, that you know, and, and fans of when we when we're in Philadelphia or or Phillies fans or Anna or Angel fans that'll come up to them, they always remember the mask. And and yeah. as a kid, I didn't think it was a big deal. But now that I look at it, it was. He was kind of known for that guy with the goofy mask, and he happened to be winning gold gloves at the time. Well, yeah, you know, there was, there was, when you worked behind Bob Boone, there was three footprints. If it was a right, a left-handed batter, he had his left foot was directly behind the point of home plate. His right foot was slightly forward and the, and the, you know, the glove was where it is. If a right-hander came up, it was just the opposite. The right foot now moved into the, to the center footprint and the left footprint moved up. And that's all he did. He was never doing that. You know, when you see him pound their glove and then put their hand outside and then quick try to come inside, there was none of that going on with him. He just set the glove there and hit it. And and it, you you had such a, like I said, you had such a good look. You couldn't miss. I mean, and even if you did, he didn't make it a big point because he knew you were going to get the next one right. Uh no, he was he was great to work behind, and but he was again he treated young umpires with respect, and like I said earlier about that, you never forget that, you never forget that. Two thousand seven, you get a chance. Uh, you're the crew chief, and it was you and uh, Jeff Nelson, Wolfie, and Jim Joyce. Um, yeah. How much does it? How much does a crew chief? How much say do you have in that? Is it assigned um, to you? Do you get to pick? Usually, basically, uh, they send out a sheet, usually in December, to the Chiefs, and it's got five lines on it, and you you can list five names. And of those five names, they have to give you one of those guys. Usually, they'll give you two of them, and a lot of times, you'll get three of them. Uh, <laughs> sometimes, if there's a young guy up, um, cause Wolfie was pretty young in the league at the time. And Jimmy and I had been around a long, Jimmy's one of my best friends in the game. And, and, uh, so I had Jimmy for sure. And Jeff's a Minnesota boy had him as a student at umpire school. And, uh, I mean, I couldn't go wrong with that crew cause Jimmy Wolf is a very, very talented umpire. And, um, and Garcia was a supervisor at the time. And he said, "All right, I'm taking care of you because you because you worked your tail off with me back in the day. So don't screw this up. <laughs> so I said, it's going to be hard for me to screw this up with these three guys going out there every night. That so was so you, much fun. We had so much fun on and off the field. Uh, you know, Jimmy Joyce is is uh, you know just a, a, another guy that's just gifted. You know, Jimmy and I worked in the Dominican together, and he came up uh, just a couple of years after me." And, uh, yeah, just, just, a, you know, the same thing. You walk on the field with Jim Joyce and Jeff Nelson and Jimmy Wolf, you're, you know, you know, things are going to, you're going to be able to handle things. And the, and the players would say that they'd say, you know, we love when your crew is here because we know umpiring is not going to be a problem. When you, when you, uh, when you have your group when you're the crew, t- it's kind of like you're and not, I don't mean it in the, the partying way, but it's kind of like your little, your rock band. You guys are together for the year. You travel yep. together, yep. you eat together. Uh, you know, probably take, you probably get cars to the yard together. Um, yep. take me through a day, typical day. You're in, 
you fly into Pittsburgh, you got a four game set. Take me through your yeah. day. I know what I do, and I have, you know, us as players, we have our our checkpoints and what yeah. we do. And I get up and I eat it this time. Then I go here, and I go to the ballpark, I get my treatment. What's a typical day for Tim Cheetah going to the ballpark for a four game set? And and I want you to differentiate too. Is there a difference whether tonight you've got the plate? or you don't have the plate? Is it kind of like a pitcher, the starting pitcher? Is that a different day for you, or do you go about it similar? It, it is in that uh, Jimmy Wolf and I used to try to play golf as much as we could. He liked to play. I liked to play. Uh, I, one thing that was true with me, I hated hotel rooms. I, if I was in my hotel room, I was asleep. I was not one to sit there and watch television. I hated doing that. Um, I would, on a, on a day where I didn't play golf and when I played golf, I wanted to play early because I wanted to be back early. Cause if I'm a little tired, um, I want time to take a little nap, um, before we leave for the park. As time went on, golf became more hard to do because the games were longer and you know, you're not going to fall asleep till 2 AM. Well, I don't want to get up at seven to go play golf. I want to, I need my rest. So I stopped, stopped playing golf, <clears throat> but the average day for me, wake up, give or take anywhere around 10 o'clock because this, again, you're going to fall asleep around two, somewhere in there. Uh, I would get up, I'd go down and grab a Starbucks at the hotel and a bottle of water and I'd put my music in my ears and I'd go for a three or four mile walk in the downtown areas, uh, of the cities we worked in. And then I would get back about one o'clock, I would have a very, very light lunch. I never ate much during the day because the food that they have at the ballpark is, you know, as you know, it's, it's very good and, and we're tipping the guy. So let's eat his food, you know, and make him more money than why should I go to some restaurant? So, uh, and I get back and then about three thirty, I'd go down and jump on either the stationary bike or the treadmill or something for about 30 minutes of cardio and then shower up and, and go down and hang out in the lobby for about a half an hour. And then we'd go to the ballpark. Um, and everybody's, everybody's routine is different, but that's pretty much what I did. Uh, once in a while I would go to, uh, I like staying downtown because I would, I would go to noon mass. I'm Catholic and I can get to a daily, a weekday mass because there's always a 12 o'clock mass at a downtown Catholic church because getting, getting to mass on Sunday is really, as you know, is almost impossible between getting up and getting packed and checked out into the ballpark. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the aggravation is enough to, you know, mess you up. So that was pretty much it. Um, and then after the games, um, I, most of my friends around, the various cities were people whose family owned uh, restaurants and bars. And uh, I mean, it very rarely did a night go by that I didn't drink an adult beverage. I, I wouldn't, I don't hide that from anybody, uh, but I wasn't staying out till, you know, four or five in the morning either. Uh, but go, getting back and going straight to the hotel room is a waste of time because you're just going to stare at the ceiling because you're still wound up from the game. And, and uh, you know, even umpires get wound up. And especially if you had a big, big ball game where it was intense and it came down to the ninth inning or, or, uh, for example, uh, uh, the hardest game I ever umpired of all the full seasons I did and everything else 
the hardest game to work is behind the plate when it's a uh, 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 loser goes home. Um, and I had uh, Cleveland at Boston, and it was a game four. It wasn't even a game five. And uh, Boston, Cleveland beat Boston in Boston, and it was about four hours and 20 minutes of, you know, nine-inning baseball, and they just hung on every pitch. You know, you can't, you can't look for rhythm. You can't look for you know, any kind of flow to a game like that. You just get down and call every pitch. Just and with no matter what you call, get ready because you got to call the next one, and you just keep that going. And then finally, when they don't run out on the field anymore, you realize that the game's over. If you look for anything beyond that, you're just going to be disappointed, and it's going to affect your judgment. But that night, I did not fall asleep until probably six thirty in the morning. For the same reason as players, you know, you're you're just so intense and so wound up in, in the high level of competition that's going on, uh, you have no chance. So you just, you just unwind baby. And, uh, I tell people too, all the time I did, I did, uh, I think I did 12 divisionals. I did three LCSs and, and three world series. Two of my three world series. I never even worked home plate. 98, the Yankees swept San Diego. I was supposed to have game five. Uh, 2002, it was the Angels and Giants, and that was that was a fun series because neither team had – Angels had never been there, and the Giants hadn't been there in who knows how long. So it was kind of like the state tournament. Everybody was just happy to be there. And I got game three behind the plate, and game three is – is usually the plum assignment. If you notice the games now, they assign the crew chief to game three. And the reason is, I guess, I guess the percentage of teams that win game three is like 75%. And guys that managed a lot of those series all said the same thing, that game three is, is they want to see the best ball strike guy back there in game three. <laughs> so my game three was a blowout. It was 10 to three. Didn't, you know, didn't become anything. So I'm 0 for 2 on World Series as far as having, you know, a really, really good series. And then in 2008, I had Philly and Tampa. And Tampa tied the game in the fifth inning. Phillies were up three games to one, and it started. It rained the whole game, but then it really got heavy, and we had to stop. We had a three-day rain delay. We never for three days we didn't even come back to the ballpark. It was like 20. It was like 28 degrees and, and wet. And by that time, pretty much everybody, the media, the fans, they'd all lost interest. They just wanted the thing over. So we went back, and, and uh, the Phillies pulled it out in the fifth, so I was supposed to have the plate in game six, and I didn't work the plate again. And in the divisionals of, I think it was 12, let's say it was 12, I was assigned the plate in game five for 10 of those 12 series, and I never worked one of them. Every, every series I had went either three or four, and I never had to go, and that's the plum assignment. you know. So you go, hey, you're feeling good about yourself, but you never know what you're going to get in the postseason. You know, you get one hot pitcher or two hot batters or whatever, and it, it just plays out. But you have to be ready for that. You've got to assume you go on the field, you've got to be ready to work five hours, that if you do anything better than that, you're lucky. And, you know, again, it's just it's just – Call the next pitch. Call the next pitch. 
and again, it, it's these kids. These kids that are working today are are really good. They're getting killed by this this box on television, which is oh, a shame. But, it kills me because yeah. you know I'm a pro, yeah. I'm a proponent. I, I'm I'm always defending umpires. You know, and and in my yeah. day, yeah, most of the guys, I I. I'd, like I said, as a player, all I wanted, give me your best. Give me your best effort. Yeah. It's a, it's the human element. You're never going to be perfect. But I always felt that you're going to have a good day is establish your zone early. As long as I know what the zone is, there's nothing yeah. I have to bitch about. You know, if today, if that the zone's a little higher than it was yesterday with a different umpire back there, fine. So be it. Just so yeah. I know it's yeah. there and it's you're not going higher and you're not going to call this particular pitch. As long as we – and I tell people that all the time. The great umpires establish their zone early and they're consistent with that zone. And as players, that's all we can ask for. And, and there'll be games where, you know, guys all over the map hits the dirt, almost strike one, up and in, strike two. What am I going to do now? Now, that's going to happen. Yeah, but right. I watch this box, and I want you to yeah. in, educate everybody out there because I go crazy. And by the way, Tammy, I'm getting caught up in the box. Now the box is there, yeah. so everybody's a professional umpire. Everybody on Twitter, right? Uh, the average fan. Well, did you see that? that? That was definitely the commentators are saying. Well, that that was a strike. Uh, Why? Because because that, because it hit clearly, the it hit the laser outside. beam. Right. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I I can always tell without that box. You know, I'm just sitting in my living room. I have a pretty good idea what a good pitch is, what a tough pitch is, what which one I better not take with two strikes. But but now with that box, it kind of gives the public uh, free reign on their perfect umpires because they can go to the technology. Well, it, it hit that corner of the bottom left, and I'm going, I don't care. That's like fantasy land strike zone. Explain exactly. what you guys behind the scenes, what you're graded on and how you establish your strike zone. Well, in today's game, it's the word consistency no longer exists. Uh, it's all about accuracy. So if I'm umpiring tonight, let's say it's a regular season, and I do my game, there's, a, there's an electronic evaluation system that's installed in every ballpark, and it's strictly for the umpires. Um, I do my game. And I go home. By 10 o'clock the next morning, I can log into the umpire website and I will find out how I scored. The umpires have done that. For, that came into vogue in, uh, let's see, what year was it? 2012. Probably 2002. So the last 10 years that I umpired, I had that system. After about three years with that system, the umpires got pretty good at it to the point where we could we could log in and we knew which pitches we missed before we even saw them. You know, I could look back and go, ah, that, that 2-1 pitch on Boone in the fifth inning, it was, that was inside. I know it, it's going to tell me that it was inside. And within, when the system was first impl- uh, put, into, put into operation, uh, if you scored 90% accuracy, that meets the standard. If you are 92 or above, you have exceeded the standard. And if you are below 90, you have failed to meet the standard. After three years, the umpires got so good at it that they moved all those numbers up to 
uh, standard was 92, exceeds was 94. If you're below 92, you failed to meet the standard. Now it's over 97 that they're, they're scoring. The league average is at 97 right now, which means so in an average ball game. Right? So that box we're watching in the postseason right now, that's not it's, what you're graded. That's that not block. it. No. Right, that's just for entertainment major, value. Right, the one the major leagues have, like I said, the average – the average score every night is about 97% accuracy, which means that uh, in an average ball game, you're talking three to five pitches per umpire. And I wish they, uh, the I, I wish, is, I wish they would, I wish they would put a disclaimer before the games that yeah. this is not what the umpires yeah. are going on. So stop yelling at your TV when a ball ticks the you know when a ball ticks the corner but it's called a ball that's not what I, I it drives me crazy and I'll tell you for a while there I got caught up in it and and I'd see you know oh, yeah. ball tick, oh. tick the lower corner well, I'm like, and I've got, oh that's a strike oh wait a minute got, wait a minute that's not I've a got, strike I've got life lifelong friends I've got lifelong friends that are huge baseball fans you know and, and that they're saying the same thing I mean these guys are terrible this <laughs> is terrible. What are you talking about? You know, and the problem is, and the MLB does have the power to do this, but they won't. Is first of all, the technology varies from network to network. So uh, Fox has their own. ESPN has their own. TBS has their own. Uh the Yes Network has their own. The SNY Network has their own. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Valley Sports, which is in a lot of different Midwestern towns. I don't know if you're familiar with them. but it, it's, Yeah, I am. There's all kinds of – yeah. So my point is, you know, if baseball just says, look, we're going to go to this system for everybody. You know, the first thing Fox is going to say is, we don't want it. We don't want to use the ESPN system. We want our own. We've got our own. And the ESPN says, well, I don't want to share mine with Fox. We've got our own, and it's better than theirs. So, okay, what do we got now? Now we got a problem. We've got different technology, different nights. And here's a classic example of what this just happened. About a month ago, Mark Wagner, who is a terrific – Mark is always in the top five every year for ball strike accuracy. And he, he also grew school, up in I St. Believe. Paul, Minnesota. Did he, huh? he, went to the same, he went to the same high school you did. He did. You're exactly right. And, you and, know, I was uh, going to mention that a, high school name, but it's harder to read than your, than your last name. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so Wags, uh, Wags had a game in St. Louis. He's got the Mets in St. Louis. Let me make sure I get this right. <clears throat> he calls strike three to end the game on a Mets hitter who's up with guys on second and third in a one-run game. He calls strike three, game over. The Cardinals broadcast, telecast, technology said that the pitch was inside. It went their way, it said, but it said it was inside. The Mets telecast, who it went against, it said that it was a strike. And the umpire evaluation system said that it was acceptable, which acceptable gives you a two-inch margin, which you get credit for getting it right. 
So my point is they want to go, they want to go to a challenge system on balls and strikes. That's what they're doing in the fall league right now, where you call a pitch on a batter and he oh, doesn't like it. All he has to do is he, he taps, he taps the top of his helmet, which means I want to challenge that pitch. So now they challenge the pitch and they go and go, all right, what system are we using here? Which one are we going to go to? Because, you know, if the Mets wanted to challenge it, what do they have to do? They got to use the Cardinals. They, you know, I mean, can you imagine the confusion that's going to come when if they ever go to that? It, it, it's it's going to be comical. I can't I can't fathom what it's going to be like to watch a baseball game if they ever ever put that system in place. I just cringe at the thought. I really do. Well, I'm it's glad hard enough to watch a game as it is. I'm glad you cleared that up. So all you guys that watch the World Series and and you want to get on the umpire that they're missing calls, that's not the truth. That is for no. for your viewing exactly. pleasure, and it, it's like it's something to keep you occupied and to make you think that you could be a big league umpire too, myself included. So oh, yeah. that stupid box, we should get rid of the whole thing. But I guess I, I guess it's well, – uh, I don't know. Well, and then it drives got, me, it drives these me pirates, crazy. These you got these pirate guys on Twitter who have their own system that they came up with in their basement, you know, and they're down there doing this umpire thing. And it says that umpire Brett Boone had the worst night last night. He missed, uh, he only scored 81% accuracy. He missed uh, this many pitches. And the worst one was this pitch, which was 4.7 inches outside. All right. First of all, where'd you get your technology? And secondly, Trust me, if a guy went out there and shot a legitimate 88% after what these guys are used these players now are used to seeing every night how good they are, if you had an 88% night, you, you'd have to leave the game in the sixth inning because there wouldn't be any players left. You'd have so many ejections. There, it's just not possible. It is not possible. And it's, it's like Bill Miller, the union president, uh, uh, went to the commissioner's office like back in June and he just said, are you going to stand up for us or not? Is there somebody in here that's going to, that's going to declare, hey, these websites are, are bogus and the network things? He said, are you, are, you, are you trying to make us look bad so that you can implement this electronic strike zone? If that's what you're doing, just tell us. Just say so, and we'll adjust. But right now, we're getting killed. You know, every day, umpire X, umpire Y, and I've always said this. Here's the thing that that I was most concerned about when I was umpiring. I could handle myself. I could handle any kind of criticism. You know, whatever came with the territory. I was the only thing that ever concerned me was my children. If if I had something on national TV and I had a few in my years that I messed up, and you know, I was I was a story for the news cycle for 24 hours. Okay, well, I signed up for it. I was only concerned about my kids at school, getting bullied, getting picked on, getting harassed, you know, cause your dad blew that call and the Yankees lost and blah, 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 whatever it was. Uh, that was the only thing that ever concerned me. And that's one thing that bothers me about this kind of, this kind of, uh, uh, the way they look at it, the way they, uh, the, the, the level that they're supposedly held to is just, insurmountable and what's expected, you know, like the other day, I just, I just, I just picked up a new car, right? It's a Toyota RAV4. It's my fourth one. And it's got, it's got a speedometer. That's a dial, the old fashioned dial. 
and then it's got a digital. And then if I set my cruise, it's got another digital. So when I set my cruise, I set my cruise the other day at 62. Well, my one big digital said I was going 65. And then my cruise one said I was going 59. And then I went past one of those flashing lights, you know, that has the jugs gun on it. It says I was going 63. So that's four different sources of electronic analysis and four different answers. I don't care what it is, but it just goes to show you that, you know, you know, electro analysis and that technology isn't perfect. And when it goes down, it goes down. You know, if they, if they start relying on this stuff and all of a sudden it blows a tire during a game, can you imagine the, the, the frantic response they're going to have? What are we going to do now? We don't have replay tonight. Oh. Right. Yeah. Oh, what would we possibly Give me a break. do? And, and I do yeah. like some of the new things. For one, yep. the uh, I, I hate the fact that they've taken away the contact at second base. I, I felt like as a second baseman, I agree. That's, the only way, that's the only way I separated yep. myself from an average second baseman to a, to a high-level second baseman. That guy was bearing, bearing yeah. down on me in the ninth inning. I had to turn that big double play. He's trying to kill me. That's what separated right. me. And, and I, I miss that. I miss the collisions at the plate. I do like the little things. The, the instant replay for that fair or foul home run that goes over the foul pole. I think as Absolutely. a player, and you probably as an umpire, you want to get that right, especially in a big game. So let's replay Absolutely. that. But the little things they're doing now, uh, they're just driving me crazy. This this pitch clock next year, it's like you're really going to tell a Let's take, for instance, a Wainwright from St. Louis. He's going to be 40 years old. He's been pitching right. one way since he's 15 years old, and all of a sudden you're going to say, if you don't get the ball, throw it back within 18 seconds, I'm going to call a ball. Yeah. And all of a sudden, yeah. how is that, how do you think that's going to go? So I, I'm for keeping up with times, and it's 2022. Yeah, let's use technology to our advantage. Let's let's make the game as great as it, it can be without changing yeah. the game because that's why the game's great. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I I, uh, I would rather see them, you know, Jim Cott went into the Hall of Fame this summer. Jim Cott worked faster than any pitcher in the history of the big leagues. Oh, he was Ask your dad sometime. Ask yeah. your dad, because I think they played together in Philly at one time. Yeah, they did. Um, Cott, Cott should, they should use Jim Cott from the commissioner's office and send him around to these camps in spring training with video of himself and show how fast he worked. He had no windup. He never left the rubber. He caught the ball from the catcher. He was on the rubber and looking in. And boom, here comes the next pitch. Here comes the next pitch. As an umpire, you never took your eye off because you knew if you did, you might miss a pitch coming in because he worked so fast. And as... uh Bobby Knight used to say, pressure is trying to get somebody to do something faster than they're willing to do it. And you think about that as a hitter. you got a guy working fast. You just automatically stay in the box. It, 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 you, it, it's just an out. It's a, it's a reflex, a reflex reaction, I should say. You go, hey, I ain't going to wander too far away. But you realize if the guy's working you fast, it's going to be, you're not going to see a lot of pitches. You know, because get the ball and throw it. They are saying that uh, 
a lot of broadcasters in particular are saying that when you see a kid that gets called up from AAA, uh, it's it's clear to see <clears throat> that he has been pitching where there's a pitch clock because they work faster. These younger kids, they they, they right. were brought I, I'm up just on interested. It. Right, I'm interested to see. I, I can understand if you're teaching this for years and years in the minor leagues and right. all the young right. players are coming up with this. That was the way. I can see that, but just all of a sudden saying big league, it's almost like, you know, and I look at it from a pitching position. As a defense, right. when I'm playing defense, I loved guys that you, worked fast. You it's love like, it, absolutely. Pick it up and throw. But absolutely. as a hitter, I like to work at my pace. Like, I step out of the right. box, I might have this, that. Now, you mentioned a Jim Cott-type pitcher. Anytime I was facing somebody right. that worked fast, it made me a little bit uncomfortable. Like, all right, yeah, I got to stay in the box. That's out of my regimen. I, I usually don't do that, so I'm kind of a fish out of water. Sometimes it worked out good for me. Sometimes it didn't work out good. But as hitters, as you know, we like to – we're kind of creatures of habit. We want to work at our pace. And all of a sudden, I turn around and there's a clock. Well, I'm going to have to adjust to that. But I would think it would be tougher for the pitcher that doesn't work fast and hasn't been working fast for 20 years, but at the same time has been very successful. He has to change up the way he pitches now. And, and I don't know if that's necessarily fair just one day to drop that on him and say, oh, this is the way it's going to be now. So I, I I don't know I, I mean exactly. we'll see it's going to yeah. be interesting to watch how it how it unfolds but um, I don't know for for me as a baseball purist uh, like I said I, I welcome new technology if you have a great idea that can make the game better and make more fans come to the game well then I'm all for it but at the same time I like to keep it as pure as possible because I yeah. think that's what separates our game from from everybody else. I understood this year when, you know, the National League forever uh, didn't have the designated hitter. I understood. It's 2022. Uh, you you yeah. want to make it uniform. You know, like with the umpires, they uniformed it in 2000. Well, now they uniform that part of the league. And yeah. for somebody that's looking out for the best of the game, oh, you know, maybe we'll see an offensive player that in the next 15 or 20 years that maybe we would have missed out on. If you didn't have the universal right. DH, look at it that way. You know, no you question. wouldn't have seen David Ortiz have all those great postseasons if he wasn't in the American League, uh, being the DH. So I, I, I exactly. tend to look at stuff like that and and just pick and choose. How about a check swing? I don't think there's anything in the rule, book, but you, that's the big thing. Nope. It's easy to it's yep. easy to sit there and say he went. Well, you can slow it down times a thousand. Well, the first thing is. Next time you're watching a game, and this is for your listeners, always remember that that first camera angle they show is a bad look. It's it's always going to come from probably right behind the on-deck circle or the near end of the dugout, okay? So it looks like they went every time from that angle, always. But the umpire is all the way up to the foul line, all the way up to the foul line. And there is no rule. There is not even a guideline in the umpire's manual. It, it's simply pretty much this. It's a judgment call. And when I was working, I would tell my crew, if the head of the bat crosses the front corner of the plate or the foul line, whichever one you want to use, because it's the same thing, if, if the head of the bat hits that foul line, call it, a, call it a swing. Unless, unless the only thing that that hitter was doing was trying to avoid being hit by a pitch. 
meaning if the pitch is way up and in and the bat never gets off their shoulder, but they spin their body so far trying to get out, yeah, okay, the bat did go that far. He had no intention or desire to try to hit that ball. All right? And you got to trust yourself on that. you got to believe in yourself, and you got to call what you see. But if that, if that bat gets to the foul line, you know, they start their swing and they try to stop, you know, get it. And because the other reason is, and this, you know, you should, I always told my guys, you should never, ever umpire with consequence in mind, meaning, oh, this is going to get me in trouble or this is going to cause an argument or this, that you got to call what you see. You got to do what you think is right. And you let the chips fall. That's how you do this job. And the only exception, there is no exception. I, I, I stated that incorrectly. If, if you see the bat, from from first base or third base, cross that foul line and call it every time. Again, unless he's just trying to avoid being hit. And the reason is because when they show replays on that, they're going to show it from a camera angle that's going to look like he went big time. You know what I'm saying? So the, the cameras are going to back you up on that. Um, there's been a couple really, really tough ones, too, in the postseason. I've said for years that someday, Someday, the seventh game of the World Series, the last out is going to come down to a check swing. It's going to happen someday. And it's gotten closer this year. We had, what was it, an LCS game that was decided on a check swing to end the game? And one of them was, they said no swing, and he he was out like two pitches later or something like that. It's, you know, if you talk about a game of little things, boy, here it comes. That's a, that's in the pressure cooker. Getting kicked out of yes, a game. It is. What a well, yep. for, I got a question for you. How many times do you think I've been kicked out of a game? You think I, a lot? Or you? Little? Yeah. No, I, I'm guessing probably three, two, three. No, once. See, they always yeah. think I'm the red ass, and, and and you notice Aaron Boone if you're watching these days. He, he gets seems like he gets yeah. kicked out once a week, and everybody always thought, oh, Brett's the red ass, and Aaron's the nice brother. Yeah, no, right. Yeah, quite, it was always see, that I, way. That was the reputation. I knew how I knew how to work it though. I got kicked out of one game and it yeah. was uh <laughs> I, I, in Kansas City, I forget who was working the plate. It was one of those tough games, 445. First pitch almost hit the dirt. Strike. Yeah. I'd turn around, you know, I'd say my little stuff that I would say. Oh, well, I'm having a rough time. We can't see because you really couldn't see this particular day. Anyway, yeah. I ended up yeah. getting two pitches, just terrible. I ended up striking out on a 3-2 count. And swing and strike. Threw my bat down and he ejected me. And I said, do you realize I've never been ejected in my career, minor leagues or the big leagues? And you just ejected me for swing because I threw my equipment. I said, I swung at the pitch. He goes, yeah, but you didn't throw your equipment because you swung at the pitch. You threw your equipment because you were pissed at the two pitches I called. I said, you're right. But how can you inject that into my into kicking me out of the game? I had a clean slate. Anyway, that's my little quick story. I, 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 one's, 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 as, one's as good as going clean. If you don't go once, you're not worth it. You're not worth it. You got to you know? go. Just before before I retired, I had to go, didn't I? But I kind of characterize it when people ask me, what does it take to, to – I said, it's like a relationship you have with these umpires. You know, it's like you're in seventh grade and you have the teacher that likes you, but there gets to be a certain point where you're pissing her off. 
and you know that line. Yeah, if you yeah. cross that line, she's going to send you to she's going to send you to the principal's office. You need to know where that line is. When I would get and that always, look, oh, go ahead. I I've got two choices. When I get that look from from Tim Cheetah, I have two choices. I can either go to the principal's office or do I want to stay in this game? And and I knew mm-hmm. that line for the most part. I think most players do. Some players don't. Managers, especially, it's more of a maybe I'm going out there to get thrown out of the game type type thing. Yeah. But as players, for the most part, we don't want to get kicked out. It's usually guys that lose their temper, say the wrong thing, wrong time. Maybe maybe you've been at it with each other, you know, uh, last series or two games ago when you were out at second base, uh, whatever it may be. For Tim Cheetah, what's it take for you to 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 run somebody? Well. Um... First of all, as you said earlier, you know, the one thing that you try to do as an umpire to establish your reputation, if, if my name comes up and somebody's going to describe me, here's what I would hope they would put on my tombstone. He worked hard. He was fair. He cared about and tried to do a good job. You could talk to him, but you couldn't mess with him. If you can, if you can do those five things, you're a good official. For me, and pretty much every other umpire, but for me, the first words out of my mouth is if they come out yelling and screaming. Yeah, you know, my first words are going to be, "Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm right here. I'm right here. I can hear you. I, my hearing is fine. You don't have to yell at me. Let's talk." And it usually disarms them a little bit, and they catch their breath, and and now you're conversing like grown men. Um, I can usually see at that point if they have an interest in getting ejected or if they're just sticking up for their player. The key word in any argument is you. You can you can say pretty much whatever you want to about the call that I just made. You know, I've been in this game since I was 20 years old. You know, and that's the worst bleeping call I've ever seen in my life. Hey, for all I know, you might be right. I I don't know where you've been for the last 20 years. <laughs> But but if if you if you tell me that I'm the worst umpire that you've ever seen in 23 years, you're done right now. No questions asked because I'm not. And that when you use the word you, that is abuse. That is verbal abuse. No one should have to take that in any walk of life. It's the same thing as in a, in a restaurant. And going back to your teacher, who was your favorite teacher? Probably the one that was the most strict. You knew it but you respected that teacher because of that. And you knew you couldn't cross those lines. Um, and I would, I would uh, hope to say that, that I had that same reputation. I don't want anybody afraid of me. They don't have to be afraid of me. They just got to know that. And that was one of the greatest accomplishments of my career. Or when I knew that I'd reached a certain point when the dugout would chirp on something, all I had to do was look over there not harshly, not rip my mask off and start walking that way. Just look over and watch him get quiet. If you can do that, you've arrived. You know, you're in the club. You've got a green jacket at Augusta. You've got a World Series ring. You are, <laughs> you are a major league umpire if you can, if you can do that. And, and it's the same for all the other sports. But the key word, again, is you. Y-O-U. And anything else obvious, you know, a physical contact or, or if they go crazy and they start throwing things, that kind of, you know, that's, that's obvious stuff. But, but when it comes to the verbal stuff, uh, you know, again, 
a lot of people will say, you know, if they swear, if they swear, if I, if, if we ran everybody that swore, some guys wouldn't oh. make it past the national anthem. You know? that's, right. yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's not a that's deal. Right. That's, that's, that means nothing. Uh, but you, <laughs> you is a swear word for umpire. Um, been in a few no hitters. Kenny Rogers, I yeah. think you were the third. I think you you didn't have the plate that day. Zombrano, you had the no, plate. But the my two two stories I want you to tell me about are you had not you had Nolan Ryan's uh, seventh no hitter, and then the classic, the nineteen eighty seven. The are you trying not to laugh? The Phil Negro yeah. gets ejected <laughs> with the Embry board. He, he takes it in his pockets. He throws it out. You kind of have your your hand on your chin and you just kind of look down like. Uh, really, are we doing this right yeah. now? So take me through those two. Yeah. Those are two stories I want to hear. Nolan Seventh had to be pretty well, cool because it, it's not like it was his first or his second. I, I'm sure a no-hitter is exciting. I've been – I played defense behind a couple. I've never been no-hit. So kind of a proud yeah. moment for me. But uh, yeah. take me through those two. Well, the Nolan one was, was really – all the, the pre-game stuff is really the better part of the story. But – uh, I was working that year with Drew Coble and uh, Mark Johnson and uh, uh, John Shulock. And I was the number four guy on the crew, and it was my plate game that night. And we, that year with that crew, we played golf almost every day. We would get up early and get out there, and uh, and all everybody's a pretty decent stick, so we had fun. And, of course, as you know, I don't know if you've played much golf, but you know the teams always have a good deal at some really nice course, so had a lot of a lot of good places to go. And, and uh, Jeff Kunkel played for the Rangers at the time, and his dad, of course, was a former major league umpire. So Jeff got us on at some really hoity-toity place in Dallas. Well, normally I would want to be teed off by about seven a.m. because I got the plate, and it's Dallas, and it's May first, and it's hot. Well, these guys were tiddling around and. We didn't get rolling. We didn't. We didn't tee off till about ten thirty, and I was not happy. And they didn't care about me that day, so I really don't want to be out there. I almost called a cab and said, "You know what? You guys play. I'm going back." Because when you worked Nolan in Arlington, it was always going to be a challenge because he was going to stay in the game no matter what he did because he was better than anything they could bring in out of the bullpen. But it was also kind of a sideshow. And, you know, I we ended up not even going to the hotel. We went straight to the ballpark. And I took a shower, and I just, I just kind of closed my eyes in the far corner of the dressing room just to kind of relax. And so we go off in the lineup cards, and Bobby Valentine brings the lineups out. And he's I look down the right field line. It was the old, old, old ballpark. And there's a guy warming up in the bullpen and, and Bobby says, Nolan, Nolan's back is stiff. He goes, he's not even sure he's going to get out of the first inning. So I got, I got so-and-so ready. If, if, if he's got to go, he's got to go. All right. Well, that was good news anyway. So they take the field and the Rangers take the field, of course, big cheer. And then Nolan takes the field. Big cheer. Number two. And he would take his warm-ups, and I don't know if you recall, but he used to take a big wind-up, and he would just loft lollipops up there warming up. I mean, humpback tosses. And he'd throw about four or five of them. And then he'd give the signal to throw it down, and he would 
loft another one up there and they'd throw it down and and then then he would walk in to the area in front of home plate and he'd take his right spike and kind of step down on the grass you know and he would look at the visiting dugout as he did it as, you know as if to say you know he's trying to he's trying to test the grass but he's telling the visiting team if you're thinking about bunting you know think again <laughs> and again the whole ritual is going on and i'm i'm finally starting to go let's Oh, <laughs> right enough already. So they're playing Toronto in the 91 Toronto Blue Jays, which was essentially the team that went on to win back-to-back world championships. Tremendous ball club, really solid from top to bottom. So the second inning, first inning was whatever. Second inning, he, he strikes out the side looking, all three guys on curveballs that were undisputed. And as you recall, his curveball was devastating. And his everybody always talks. You talk about Nolan Ryan. You talk about his fastball, but his curveball was ridiculous. If it was on, if he was getting it over, they couldn't hit it. So I call three guys in a row out on strikes. Nobody even looked back at me. They didn't say a word. And I happened to notice as the team was running off into the first base dugout, the Rangers, uh, all three infielders. Uh, we're looking at each other. The third base board, shortstop, second base, Bouchel, uh, Jeff Houston, and Julio Franco. They were they were all looking at each other and they were smiling, kind of laughing almost, because they knew they knew that uh oh he's getting the breaking ball over. This could be something. So now what happens is he's getting the hook over. Then they they start swinging at every fastball. They see fastball, they're swinging. So I really didn't have to call too many close pitches up until. Um, uh, the eighth inning. No, it was the ninth. It was the top of the ninth. And uh, in the meantime, it was, you know, they just, I was back there going, you know, somebody, if, if they're going to get a hit, somebody's going to break their bat and hit a little flare out over the second baseman's head or something. They're not going to square him up tonight. He just, he was too good. And uh, he ended up uh, striking out Robbie Alomar swinging uh, to end the game. And, uh, in fact, I've got the thing in my office. I'm looking at it. It was a two, three hour, three hour, four minute game. 122 pitches. Uh, what else? What else? I guess that's about it. But it was pretty cool. You know, I mean, it was like wow. Uh, and then before I do the the Negro thing, I'm going to give you the the other one because it it's pretty good. The Kenny Rogers one. I had third base, which you know sometimes in a no hitter the pressure can be on everybody else, not necessarily the plate umpire. You know, if you're the first base umpire and you like Jimmy Joyce, you know, mm-hmm. you have a play like that and it ends up changing a, a no hitter or perfect game or whatever. Everybody's got a job to do. Well, so I'm working third base and Rogers is pitching and we had a young kid by the name of Eddie Bean who came up for about 150 games over two years, never did get, make the full staff, good umpire, good guy. So he takes one into the ninth inning, and Rogers, there's there's one out, and Rogers throws a pitch to, I think it was DeSarcina, and uh, he pull hooks one right at the third base bag. I'm working third. Now the ball was was foul, and I I can tell you it was foul, but. I could have called it fair and gotten away with it. That's, it was that close. 
Well, Dean Palmer dives across the foul line, fields it, gets to his knees. I'm th- I got my arms up in the air. I'm waving foul ball, foul ball. I'm behind him. He can't hear me. The crowd is screaming. He heaves it across the infield. Will Clark snow cones a scoop, you know, right there, and Dankinger calls him out. And I'm coming across in the middle of the infield, you know, going, no, 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 no. The ball's foul. The ball is foul. It's foul. It's foul. And now I'm standing almost on top of the mound by the time I got done making the call. And I'm, I got to walk all the way back to that position. And I'm thinking, everybody, they all just kind of looked at me like, did you really have to do this? <laughs> you know, okay, I got to call it. I see it. So I'm walking back and I'm thinking, here it comes. This guy's going to break his bat going to flare one in the short center and I'm going to be the toast of ESPN sports center for the next 24 hours. It's going to be me. Well, it turns out he, uh, he flies out to Gary Pettis to end the game and perfect game. That's it. So this was in the, the ballpark at Arlington and I tried to catch Eddie Bean walking off the field, uh, I was just going to say, here, just sit here for a minute and watch watch the celebration because, you know, you're probably never going to see another one of these in person. Enjoy the moment, you know, get get the feel. We'll get you a picture from it. And, you know, like, well, I couldn't catch him. He was long gone. He's already – so I go into the clubhouse, and he's in front of his locker. He's still got his chest protector on. He's got an empty bottle of beer on his table in front of his locker, and he's got a second one already in his hand, and he's throwing that thing down as fast as you can. And he said, he sets that one down and he goes, I said, Hey, where the heck did you go? I said, I wanted you to enjoy the celebration a little bit. What's the matter with you? And he goes, are you kidding me? He goes, they take this stuff way too serious up here. I don't want any part of that one ever again. Well, okay. So like I said, you know, you can depend, doesn't matter where you're working. You can always be in the hot seat, but the Negro thing, uh, it was in 87. That's still great. <laughs> I, time, I still love watching it. It's so great. Oh, yeah. So in 86, what happened was uh, Mike Scott won the Cy Young in the National League for Houston. And Joe Necro pitched for Houston that year. And somebody else pitched for him. I don't know if Sutton was there or not. But, um, everybody felt that Mike Scott scuffed the ball. And the umpires flagged him on it one night and turned him in. And Chubb Feeney was the league president, and Chubb didn't do anything about it. So the umpires decided, well, if he's not going to back us, why should we worry about it? If they don't care about it, why should, why should we be out there worrying about it? Let them handle it. Well, then Necro comes over to Minnesota, and he's pitching that night. And we had had a couple games earlier with different teams where guys were clearly scuffing the ball. Tommy John was one of them and, and uh, a couple others. Uh, but anyway, this night in, in Anaheim, imagine, just imagine what a scuffed knuckleball would do. Because Joe, Joe didn't throw his very hard. So it, it had a lot of movement anyway. Now if you put a big scuff on it, you know, it's like a wiffle ball coming up there. And, he had a pitch early in the game where it was coming at Brian Downing right at his head and Downing hits the dirt and the pitch, the pitch fell in for a strike. And I mean, it was an easy strike. It was a center cut by the time it did all its stuff. 
So I called it. And Brian, I can still see his face. He got up. He had dirt on his chin. And he looks at me. He goes, that was a strike. And I went, it was definitely a strike, Brian. So all of a sudden, now back in those days, we had a rule. It was called the uh, the Marshall Rule, which is from Mike Marshall, who used to pitch for the Dodgers, and he pitched for the Twins and a few others, and he used to scuff the ball. And he would always tell his teammates, whoever got the last out, like if like you're playing second, if you made the last out as a force out at second, just take the ball off the field with you. Don't give it to anybody. Just take it off. Out at first, first just take the just the last guy take the ball with. So then the American League rule put in a rule about uh, if you have the last out, you have to hand the ball to the nearest umpire. And the umpire then inspects the condition of the ball. If it's still good, he rolls it to the mound. If it's scuffed, he throws it out of play. So we're in about the fourth inning or whatever it was, and Dave Phillips was the crew chief, and Davey came down to me. He said, are uh, you noticing anything funny out here? I said, funny? I said, I got five balls in my in my bag. Looks like they went through a paper shredder. He said, well, I've got two. Stevie's got two. And Danny Morris and Danny's got two. He goes, all right, if we see anything else the rest of the night, we're going to flag them. I said, all right. So I go back behind a plate, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm not going to spend the rest of my night <laughs> waiting for the other shoe to drop. So I thought, the heck with it. He threw a pitch to, I forget, I think again it was Downey. And Joe didn't throw exclusive knuckleballs. He, he threw a little, a little slider and a little fastball and this and that. He probably threw 65 70% knuckleball. So he throws a pitch to Downing. I call it a strike. And he walked to the back of the mound with his back to me. And I said, the heck with it. I'm going to take care of this now. My thinking was, if I check him now, he's going to skate because he didn't do anything. And that's what I want. You know, the pitcher is responsible for the condition of the ball that he delivers. And this is this chance I'm thinking, perfect. Oh, I, I can get I can warn him. He stays in the game and everybody's happy. So I went out there and he turns around and there I was and I said, Joe, I need to see uh, your glove and your hands, please. And he turned white as a sheet. He goes, that was a slider, you know. And I went, yeah, I, I know. I just, I just need to see your glove and your hand. He had already given me the ball, and uh, so he flips me his glove, and he immediately puts his hands in his back pocket. Well, Dave was at Dave Phillips was to the mound by then. He was working second, and Davey says, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, now you got to empty your pocket. You got to go to your pockets before you show me it. So yeah, you got to empty your pocket. So he's fiddling around. He's still got his hands in his pockets. And finally, out of the right pocket, he pulls a picture, a little, a little picture. And it's him and his son. His son was probably 15, maybe. And they had a huge uh, marlin. They'd gone on a deep-sea fishing thing together. And, uh, and Joe says, there. There is a picture of me and my kid. Is that what you want? And, you know, Dave says, oh, that's not really what I had in mind. Well, what he had was he had a piece of sandpaper that was about the size of a half a dollar, and it was glued to the palm of his glove hand. 
So, like, if he took his glove off and held his hand up, you wouldn't really see it because, you know, sandpaper is the same color as skin, and it would blend right in. You wouldn't you wouldn't see it. So he'd get the throwback from the catcher. He'd just take the glove off and rub the ball a couple of times, and it would just, you know, scuff the daylight out of it. He also had, in the other hand, the other pocket, he had a little emery board that was about uh, three, four inches long. Now, he could have got away with the emery board because how am I going to flag him for that? How's he going to use that in front of us in the middle of the field? You know, there's no way. And his line was, no, I keep it because I do throw a knuckleball and my fingernails get in and sometimes I have to follow him. I, I totally believe that. And I wouldn't have had to penalize him for it. But sandpaper, sorry, you can't have that. So what he what he did was he kept the other he kept his hands in his pockets and if you can picture this he's taking his middle two fingers on the left hand and he's slowly but surely peeling the sandpaper off of the palm of his hand till he finally broke it loose and then is when he pulled the hands out and he flipped them in both directions and the sandpaper went one way and the emery board went the other and that's when we knew it you know oh my god so you know, again, I had absolutely no intention or desire to catch him or to f- penalize him, and we certainly didn't want to be the, the show. But that's how it came down, and it was funny because Joe and I became actually very good friends after that, and uh, when I told him the story how I saw it, you know, as I just explained to you, he said, well, I kind of figured. He said, I didn't think you were going after me. I said, I was trying to do the exact opposite. I said, I wish I didn't realize it was going to play out that way. He said, yeah, too you know guilty, what, though, I, I made a, a lot of money yeah. going on, going on Letterman and everything else. He said, that was fine. So the funny, the, there's a caveat to it in that uh, his son, that's in the picture, his name is Lance. And Lance was uh, drafted and signed by the Giants. And he played uh, AAA, and then he got he got called up to the big leagues. And he was he was like a fourth outfielder, backup first baseman kind of player, right-handed hitter. And I was working in San Francisco one day at first base, and the Giants took the field, and he came running out. He's playing first that day, and he runs right past the bag, and he runs all the way up to me, and he goes, excuse me, Mr. Cheetah. And I went, yes? And he goes, how do you do? I'm Lance Negro. How, how, nice to meet you. And I went, oh, my God, how are you? He says, I've got something I want to show you. And he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out the picture of him and his dad because Joe had since passed away. And, uh, that was kind of, that almost brought tears to my eyes. That was, that was really cool. And Lance ended up playing about four or five years. And now he's a, he's a division one head coach somewhere in Florida, somewhere in Florida state or Miami or somewhere. I know, but he's, he's had a very, very successful college coaching career, uh, but that was that. I don't know if what was better, the actual incident or or meeting up with his son years later. And I wonder too, you know, as a position player, my believe me, I helped as much as I could. I mean, if if I could get away with the um, the catcher in between innings, you know, certain pitchers were in the game. My catcher right. would bounce it to me at second base on purpose, so it'd skip in the dirt, and if nobody saw it. I could possibly get a scuff on the ball for whoever that reliever sure. was. And I was a team player. If that guy said, hey, if you can get me a scuff, give me a scuff. Absolutely. I played that game. Yeah. I knew guys that had the Manny Moda stick, and they'd use it for breaking balls. And as long as you're on my team, 
we got no problem. You get traded somewhere else. We've got a. We're gonna have a talk before each series you play my team. I'm wondering how much yeah. you know. So much has been made of the modern day game, the spider tack, and I see the. Yeah. You know, the pitcher in between innings getting checked every time. And I just, I don't know. I, I look at it and I, it's probably more for the optics. Like you said, as an umpire, yeah. you didn't want to go, you didn't want to go out and, and catch Negro. It just so happened that it was so no. in your face. You had to do something about it. Right. Right. Yeah. I was, you know, like Gene Mock was managing the angels and, you know, they asked him after the game and he said, most balls weren't scuffed. They were mutilated. These were, these were, I mean, you look, I've never seen a ball scuffed like that. You know, and that even even throwing slow that that's dangerous. If you're throwing a ball that you can't control out there, that's not necessarily a good thing. But most of the guys that were scuffers were soft throwers because all they all they wanted was just subtle movement, just enough to get it off the barrel. And 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 two, you know, there guys, is one thing there one there is one thing about getting scuffing the ball. It's another it's another skill all in itself to do something with that scuff that's been being able to control Correct. that ball with the scuff. So, you know, it, right. Anybody couldn't just do it. Um, no. And, and a lot, a lot of guys like Schilling, Schilling declared, he said, I don't want a scuff ball. I don't know what it's going to do. I don't like, right. I, he said, I, right. I said, I'll declare I've tried it. I've tried it and I don't like it. I don't want anything to do with it. And some guys say that, you know, they just say it's not for me. But like I said, most power pitchers don't want it. It's guys that throw, you know, 86, 88, maybe top out at 90 that that could use it uh, to their advantage because they're going to get just get that ever so slight movement. What do announcers get wrong about umpires? Say again? What do announcers, play-by-play guys, anybody up in the booth, what do they get wrong yep. about the umpires? That's a good question. I I think I think there's the obvious one, and it's probably true in all sports that the that there's such a thing as a makeup call. You know, uh, this one went their their way, and they were you know trying to well, we caught our break, they caught theirs, blah blah blah. You'll hear that. Um, trust me when I say this. It's the last thing on an umpire's mind. Because from an umpire's perspective, all you're doing is getting two of them wrong instead of being wrong once. And, you know, when you call something, I can, I can honestly tell you, I think, I think every call that I made that I was incorrect, I knew I was wrong at the time. I, I just knew it. You, know, you yeah, always know when that, you're right. Right, it's that's kinda, an interesting it's thing. It's kind of like... They will say it all the time. Yeah. Oh, that's a makeup call. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like it's just like when you were when you were hitting, you know, when you when you knew you got one and it was going to go out, you knew right. it. You 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 usually you usually knew it. It's kind of like that. You know, it's like when you hit your driver and you don't feel a thing. You know, you got it as good as you can get it. Right. And umpires the same way. I I knew I was right. I just knew I was right. You know, and I I knew when I was wrong because. Generally, if you're not sure, you're probably wrong. You're, you're, you're most right. likely wrong because you always know when you're right. Right. From the time you came into the game to present, how's the game changed the most? 
from a management standpoint only. I remember when I first got there, you know, if you went through the American League Red Book and you went to, uh, say, uh, the Minnesota Twins page, only because I live here, it would say uh, Jim Polad, owner, uh, Terry Ryan, general manager, Tom Kelly, manager. That was it. That's the first page. Then they might show their schedule for the year. Then you go to the next page, and they would list the roster of players and maybe minor league affiliates and you know that kind of stuff. Well, now you go to the first page, and it will list the owner and the GM and the vice president and the director of baseball operations and the president, and there's like six executives. And then you go down about 20 names and each one of them is an executive vice president in charge of this and in charge of that. And then you finally get down to the end of the first page and you'll get the manager only he's not the manager. He's the field manager. He is, he is considered today as middle management. The guy in the dugout is considered middle management. Now it's corporate and that's probably what has changed the most. I remember uh, Tom Kelly and Sparky Anderson, to name two. Uh, TK was about as good with us as, as there was. And in 2001 was his last year. And it came down to the 25th, 25th player. And Kelly wanted to keep a guy who could play every defensive position, including catch. He wasn't much of a hitter, but he was a really, really good defender. He was a great clubhouse guy, a great teammate, and those are the guys that Kelly liked. And the GM wanted somebody else who who had more pop in his bat and, you know, this and that, but he wasn't as multi-positional, and they were kind of fighting over who was going to get that spot. Well, as you know, the general manager is going to win that war. So... Kelly didn't get to keep the guy that his 25th guy. He, he didn't have the say. And that's when he decided it's time for me to go. If I can't pick the 25, I want, you know, they're going to, they're going to cost me my job. It's going to be the 25 I want. And Sparky said the same thing to me one day. He said to me, it's a 183 day season. It's going to be the 25 I want. They're going to determine my future. It's going to be the 25 I want. It's time for me to go. And that's kind of why the only, the only guy that has really surprised me is uh, after Ron Gardenhire was done in Minnesota, that he came back and he went to Detroit. Uh, that surprised me because I thought, because Gardy was old school too. Only I looked at the circumstances and I realized that he had the right, the opportunity that nobody else gets anymore. He was able to pick his coaching staff in Detroit. So he got all of his old buddies, got the old band back together. Nobody gets that anymore. You know, these, some of these coaching staffs, they don't even know each other. Some of them, you know, they're, they're all, they're yeah, assembled by, it, by their yeah, own. It's tough, their, it's tough yeah. going in like that too. You got to have guys that have your back. Oh. Cause like you said, yeah, you, you're getting hired one day. You're going to get fired and I don't care who you are. You, right. you can be the greatest of the right. great. You're going to get fired one day. And, and I like how you put it. You do it. I'm, uh, I'm going to get fired with my guys and, and not your guys right. telling me what to do. <laughs> and then I get fired anyway. I, I might as well get fired doing yeah. it my way. Yeah. They said Gene Mock when he managed, 
he got fired out of Philadelphia. That one of the Philly reporters said, "When did you know you were going to get fired?" Mock said, "I knew I was going to get fired the day they hired me back in '62." <laughs> That's right. That's right. And you can't put it any better than that, you know. Well, Tim Cheetah, it's been I wonder, a pleasure. I wondered, does your, does your dad miss managing at all? No, he's getting to that. He's getting to. Yeah. I think he's enjoying his time now. He he lives about ten miles yeah. from me, and and uh, you know I see him oh, a couple good. times a week. I'll get on the golf course with him once in a while. I think he misses the. Are you the are you in Southern California? Is that where you yeah. are? I'm in the yeah. I'm in the San Diego yeah. area. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tim Cheetah, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. A lot of fun catching up, going down memory lane a little bit, and. What we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the Boone podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, and that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor. Share the Boone podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the moon 29 i'm dan levy bass on air that is base on air all my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one